John Ralston Saul is probably Canada's leading <laughs> public intellectual, declared a prophet by Time magazine. Saul has received many awards and prizes, including Chile's Pablo Neruda Medal. He's president of Penn International, and his 13 works have been translated into 22 languages in 30 countries. We're here to talk about your general editorship of the Penguin series, Extraordinary Canadians, and your specific authoring of Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine and Robert Baldwin. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Why wasn't Johnny MacDonald in the lineup? Well, there are a number of people who should be there. Mackenzie King should be there, too. Um, Northrop Fry. Northrop Fry would be great in there. And Harris, probably among the group of seven, I would think. Uh, Oscar Peterson would be a very interesting one, a very interesting portrait of a time and a place, and another way of coming at society. Okay, so uh, there's no uh, conspiracy, liberal conspiracy at work. Actually, I did a very interesting analysis, uh, because I've been waiting now for several years for somebody to ask me that question. And, and let's just see if I have the answer for you right here. Here, here it is. I just knew that I would be asked this question. <laughs> You've been carrying that around for two years? No, no, I just did it the other day, actually. <laughs> okay. There's the 20 subjects, and this is a rough look at, you know, who's a conservative, not necessarily politically, but in their, their approach to life. Why do you have to be political? So there are 11 conservatives, six liberals, three uh, social democrats, communists, and two who are profoundly political. There are a couple of people, I think I put in both, because really they were both. Well, Lafontaine and Baldwin were both, uh, they're the founders of both the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, so they're in both. Yeah. So there you are, there's the answer to your question. But it is quite striking, though, that, that Johnny MacDonald, he, he wrote the BNA Act, he... Uh, well, I, the reason he's not in there is very simple, and that is because there have been a lot of biographies of Johnny MacDonald. A. B. There has been a great desire by Anglophones, starting out with Anglophone Protestants, to present John MacDonald as the Washington of Canada. You know, this sort of idea that, John, that Canada popped out of a party cake uh, in 1867 with John MacDonald, and, uh, and it's a complete uh, rewriting of, of the reality of the history. Cartier, you will notice, is always written out largely because Creighton did his big biography of MacDonald, which set in place this idea, which we're still stuck with, and, of course, Creighton really didn't like Catholics or French Canadians or Jews. And he was a nice guy apart from that. And it's a very <laughs> fine, very fine biography, apart from the fact that it's a total misrepresentation of history. And we've never come back to the fact that where did MacDonald get the idea of uh, a partnership between Anglophones and Francophones? Isn't it interesting that Cartier actually was the closest younger generation advisor to Lafontaine and Baldwin? Mm. MacDonald was an Orangeman in 1848-49 on the wrong side, anti-democratic side. Thugs. Thugs. He mm. learned from Cartier and the Lafontaine Baldwin example what you have to do to be a Canadian leader. So actually, what I, if we do some more, I'd love to see a biography, but it would be a Cartier-McDonald biography. Remember, the intellectual was Cartier. He's the CPR. He's BC. He's mm. Manitoba. He's the Prairies. He is the Canadian Army and the militia. That's Cartier. That's you know, that's quite impressive. It's not MacDonald. MacDonald gets to finish off a lot of that stuff because Cartier dies. If he hadn't died, he would have come back and come back into the government, and he probably would have at some point become prime minister again. Remember, he'd been prime minister in the Upper Lower Canada government several times. I mean, he's the one who solved the problem of choosing Ottawa as the capital. MacDonald failed to do it. Cartier managed to pull it off. So if we get another six, 
There'll be a Cartier McDonald. There'll be a, a Bourgeois Riopelle. I think there'll be a, a, a Peterson. What I was trying to do with the McLuhan was to sort of build in the idea of the Toronto School. Of course, you only get part of it, but you certainly get in it. And of course, you, you've got two of, the f two of the five, is that right? Because you've got Van Gogh. But, you know, Fry would be extremely interesting. There's no question about that. And of course, he was a very funny man. Very wry. Absolutely. And I think Lauren Harris would be a very interesting kind of figure that, to try okay. and break that awfulness that they keep saying, they just keep saying it of, you know, the post-impressionist group of seven. There's nothing post-impressionist about them. You know, that's, that's always that colonial stuff that we can only say they exist if we say they're sort of a second rate. Yeah, we didn't do anything original. You didn't do anything yeah. original. Yeah. So that's the answer to your question. The Mackenzie okay. King is the other person who really is missing. I think the fascinating thing is that Boring as a person, in many ways, and even in spite of his secret life, in a 200-page biography, yeah. you'd get an intensity, given the size of his life, in the right hands. Well, that's the next you know. question. You've You've taken some of Canada's, quote, best, unquote, writers, fiction writers in many cases, to riff off these important Canadians. You've read about four or five of them now. Mm. They all move along quickly. They're, they're well-written, easy to read, stimulating. So what you're naming are the qualities of extremely good writers and the hardest thing to do. Anybody can write turgid prose. It's not about dumbing down. It's about the quality of the prose, the intellectual clarity. Novelists... They know how to look at a figure who has been, everybody else has talked about the Constitution and, or about, you know, art history or whatever, and they look at it and they can actually see what happened. The human being behind all of this papered up academic stuff. And of course, you know, there's people like Margaret Millen, who's yeah. an historian who can do that in the great old tradition of the great historians or political essayists like Andrew Cohen who can do that. Or the one the biographer, you know, Charlotte Gray, who can do that. And I, th I think it's one of her, really, she rose to, you know, that, it's a fabulous book, mm. uh, Nine yeah. That's the other observation I have. These, are, these aren't lengthy. They take maybe four or five hours to read, if yeah. that. And yet they are moving and thought-provoking. Did you have in mind today's short attention span? No, not at all. In the history of biography, there has always been this school of the intellectual very well written short interpretation, the, the yeah. biographical essays, Suetonius, The Lives of the Painters, Vasari, yeah. uh, Aubrey, uh, yeah, Brief Lives, Andre Morois is much forgotten now but wrote all those brilliant books. I mean people think that people think that they know who, I don't know, Byron was, but they don't. What they know is what Andre Morois said Byron yeah. was, you yeah. know. Yeah. Because he mastered that idea of the short biography which is an interpretation. And so, quite the contrary, it's, an, it's what uh, Keno would have called an exercise de style, an exercise in style. Okay. That, you know, a great writer, a very good writer, can do this. A second-rate writer can't do this. It's too hard to yeah. write the life of Riel and Dumont in 200 pages unless you're a very good writer. Not many biographers know how to do that anymore because they're all into this, you know, this thing that the English really introduced, these overblown you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of, you know, detail, which is, for me is just raw research, basically. Mm -hmm. My, very few of those books have any direction to them because they're just so much stuff. So the size was chosen in order to ensure there would be a, a certain kind of quality. But it's also, it's, it's inviting. It's not well, it's like off-putting. It's, uh, no. first of all, the, the covers are uh, 
are wonderful, and uh, you know you don't get scared off by the by them. It, but so that that's also the thing that you you know a good writer can take you in right away. You don't waste fifty pages, yeah. and they get you right in and they get you going right away. So they they vary in terms of how biography are they, like the Glenn Gould is done in a in a philosophical way, you know, and there's a postmodern approach to the Emily Carr and very very interesting and of course Doug Copeland has done his fabulous yeah. thing you know uh, so he and I said to him you know Doug you have to do this because you, you are the only known living real child of, of Martha McLuhan you have to do it you know that's why it works because of those the quality of the writers what's interesting is that as you say in your introduction these are some of the most prominent voices in, in Canada <coughs> Canadian culture certainly right now so you've married them in a way that what invites Canadians to do what? There's two things that are happening, at least. One is that the choice, the incomplete 18 or 20, let's say, is is like a puzzle. You put it together, you read them all, and it's, it, it suddenly Canada reveals itself to you. The making of modern Canada is revealed because you know there's the feminist and there's the there's three feminists in there. There's Emily Carr. There's one kind of feminist. There's Ellen Montgomery, the most famous woman writer in the world, another kind of feminist. At the time, certainly. At the yeah. time, absolutely, yeah. at the yeah. time. And then you have the, the leader of the feminists, Nellie McClung. So suddenly, oh, oh my God, there's three ways, and all of the same generation, basically. And you, you put all this together, and it's not intellectually structured. It begins to reverberate in your head, another vision of how Canada was created. Well, and also, it's quite eye-opening. Now, again, maybe you're a proud Canadian who's positioning this in a certain way, but the fact is that the work of sort of two politicians that you cover, prefigured people like Gandhi and Mandela. Is that just your proud Canadian spectacles looking at, no. looking at this? No. Well, you know, history can be interpreted a thousand ways. Right. And this country has suffered greatly from the fact that in the late 19th century, I said this a lot when I wrote Fair Country, that, that most of our history was rewritten in the late 19th century by basically English professors or pro-English colonial types at the height of the empire and they took over our universities and they rewrote the history of Canada. It's one of the other reasons why MacDonald had to be the great figure because they could say that he was very pro-British, which he actually wasn't. He actually, all of his correspondence uh, with Tupper, who was in London, was about how the British were screwing them. And, and you know, he knew, but he knew that if he said a couple of pro-British things periodically, it was worth 5% of the vote, and so there you are. <laughs> but, you know, they could present this all as the kind of Canada coming out of the British Empire. And, and at the same time, you had this conservative Catholic movement in Quebec responding by doing the same thing for French Canadians. And it's held us back. It's held us back in understanding ourselves and understanding why we're here, what we do, why what we do works, when we're making mistakes and being able to recognize them as mistakes. So in a way what this series is, is uh, a ripping away of the old interpretations, the Victorian interpretation of Canada. You know, it's paint stripping it and then you discover this other place. Yes, it's, you're giving another, another version of history. Well, you're releasing it in a way. You're releasing it because I don't control this. I don't tell these people what to write. But when you select them, you have an idea yeah. where they're coming from. Yes and no. I mean, you know, I wasn't sure what Joseph would do. It's, I felt that if you put Jumont with Riel... He has Métis blood. Yeah, in. but you'd get this balance. You, you'd get out of the, the martyr thing into something else. If you put the hero thing. Into the, and you'd balance those two things together. And I felt that, you know, Jane Urquhart was absolutely the perfect person 
because she understands the suffering of women. How could the most famous and most successful woman writer in the world actually be living this triple life? And what did it say about women's lives at that time in, the, in Canada? And just you go through each one of them. But it wasn't always my idea. I mean, sometimes I would be talking to one of the writers and they say, John, I've got a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Phone so-and-so and see if they'll do so-and-so. And, yeah. and, you know, so it really became a project, a national project. I mean, mm -hmm. some people who I talked to, I'd had originally an idea they could do something. They said, you know, I just don't think I'm right for this. I'm not right. But listen, I was thinking last night, why don't you try? You yeah. know? So it wasn't just ego me. You know, there's the 20 writers here, but there were probably another 20 writers who were involved in various ways and thinking about what to do and where to go. And I'm not a nationalist in the sense that one understands, you know, the, the, the classic nationalist. I think that people come from somewhere and that you have to understand where you come from and why you do the things you do in order to do better. And I thought that Canada was suffering a great deal because even though we've often done interesting and original things, we've never been able to explain them to ourselves. It's, we have great difficulty keeping on doing them at that level because we don't have an intellectual structure to keep ourselves going because we're stuck with this bloody Victorian interpretation mm. of Canada, mm -hmm. which, yeah. which is, I think, completely false when you read, go back, you read these things and you suddenly realize, well, we weren't that kind of Victorian fusty little place, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, we were, uh, again, uh, in a, if we get to La Fontaine and Baldwin, one of the things that's so, I think, so surprising is that they fought the race not the race card, but the European version of empire. Yeah. And succeeded, at least in your telling of the story. Well, no, they did. How did they do that? Well, if you, you know, you look at the late 18th century up until 1837, and you see the gradual rise of a contradiction. And the contradiction is that you've got a country where aboriginals are not defeated and are, have been key partners and will remain key partners in many parts of the country into the 20th century. Southern Ontario, Quebec, it ends in 1820, but you just move up 200 kilometers and it's 1850 and you go another 100 kilometers and it's 1870, you know, you go west, it's 1875, and you, go, you go to the Arctic, it's 1960. So there's that. And they were so key, sorry, in, yeah. in fighting the Americans too. Well, this comes out in your La Fontaine and Baldwin. The Aboriginal peoples were key. This the defense mm. policy of this country until 1820 was entirely based on that it could only be defended by the Aboriginal. A part of the Victorian story was to downplay all of that by mm. insulting them and pretending it didn't happen. I mean, you know, there's, again, there's a big thing about this is the anniversary of the shooting of Sir Isaac Brock, who saved Canada. Didn't I just see yeah. that in the, in the Citizen? You know, Isaac Brock did some interesting things. He, interestingly enough, was an anti-democratic figure, tried to shut down the parliament and yeah. all the rest of yes. it. But, uh, but the key battle that he was killed at the beginning of was actually won by the aboriginals. So basically, you have this sort of 40 years of building up a contradiction where you have this kind of complicated country where there is no natural majority. There is no natural one language, religion, race, anything. It cannot be made one because yeah. of the geography, because of the poverty, because of the winter, you know, this list of things. And then on the other side, you have this colonial system coming out of London and the local family compact, Shadow Creek, who are living as if this is, as if this is a classic colony. So this, this is gradually building up to a clash. And the, it, the 1837 clash is, it's not just because of the denial of democracy, it's because at a certain moment, the European assumption of empire was going to bash up against the reality of Canada, mm. and that's what happened. And it was, a, and, and what was shown was that you couldn't have a European-style rebellion. It just wouldn't work here. 
for the same reasons that you couldn't have on the other side a monolithic country. Well, it was sort of rational versus emotional in a way. It was a rational combination of, of the two races that the British never thought would, yeah. would happen. Or just a sort of uh, humanistic, imagine the other, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so suddenly you have this, this in-between period of a void between 1837 and 1840 when where do we go? Nobody knows what to do. And then out of that, these two very interesting, very strange individuals, mm -hmm. very unusual individuals, a high romantic Baldwin, yeah. an incredible romantic, you know, makes Heathcliff and young Werther look like amateurs when it comes to romanticism. Yeah. And then on the other side, this man who, you know, was a big fisticuff guy, uh, intellectual, uh, you know, but suddenly is struck with this disease that means he spends most of his life writhing in pain. And no children either. And no, no children. Tragedy, yeah. And somehow the character of these two men, and then Hinks is one, you know, he did a couple of great things, Hinks, but the great thing he did was put to them put them together. Yeah. And, uh, and then they suddenly, these two men who basically had no friends, Baldwin was uncomfortable yeah. with anybody, but only with women was he comfortable. You know, he didn't like men. Anyway, these two guys find each other as each other's best friend. And I think this is what's so interesting about them. They, su they were men who suffered in enormously in private, just yeah. suffered. And they told each other about their suffering. They found someone they could talk to about their suffering. You yeah. know, they, they knew a lot about each other. And they could relate, obviously. They related for all these things, family, love, fam you know, the whole thing. Here's the question, though. Uh, uh, do you think that Canada was lucky? that these two individuals happened to be, at the time, put together. Why say luck? Why not say fate? Why not say destiny? You know, I mean, if it were the United States, would you say it was luck? There was a group of a dozen, you know, or ten geniuses at the, at the same time who'd, who could struggle their way through the incredible disorder of the rivalries of the, of the colony. Luck. It's, it's an interpretation, you know, or was it luck that Pitt the Younger was Prime Minister at the right moment during the Napoleonic uh, the Wars? I mean, you know, these things happen. The point I'm trying to get at, though, is that this powerful racial or linguistic force was countered because of these two unique individuals. It's individuals, the appearance of individuals, rather than any kind of concerted philosophy. Well, yes, yes and no, because what's interesting about this is that I think when they met, they had an idea that was almost, is incohate, is that the right word? And beginning. Beginning, and meeting obviously propelled them to this intellectual consciousness. And this is why the address to the electors of Terrebonne of, of, of La Fontaine in 1840 is such an important document. I talk about it in the book. It's the, his address to his electors and it's explaining why he's going to go along with the putting together of Upper and Lower Canada. And it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. Mm -hmm. and I think I quote some things from it. It's not that long. Yes. And you, you started to see, when you read their speeches, you read their addresses, that they actually fought their way through this. I mean, that wonderful moment when clearly Baldwin is sitting in Parliament in, in Kingsbury, which he actually quite liked. And Lafontaine was one who hated Parliament. Yeah. Baldwin had a real style in Parliament, which people have always said that you couldn't hear him and he studied. But of course, yeah. he, that, that was his method. 
because everyone quietened down. Everybody had to quiet down and lean forward. Yes. I read his his stuff. It's actually wickedly, it's a trap. I mean, he knows how to just get you in a trap, like a very good lawyer. Which they were. But the interesting thing is that he suddenly has this idea. LaFontaine's been shut out in in Terrebonne. I have a riding in North Toronto. It's a Protestant riding led by a breakaway group of Quakers, for God's sake, right? Yeah. Have you ever been to the Sharon Temple? No. You, you, this, I promise you, it is one of the most beautiful buildings in Canada. It is, and it's, you know, the 1820s. Wood. It's amazing. And, and the very thought, you can see it in his letter to his father, his father's letter to him, the various going back and forth, that they realized, what if we're going to attend the leader of the French Canadians who was in exile and had a warrant for address, to a riding in Protestant North Toronto. What does this mean and how are we going to say it? Suddenly, they're developing theory. And so that, that incohate stuff is all being dragged out. Strategy. It's strategy, but it's philosophy. And it's giving a shape to ethics, because that's what they, they've got ethics, right? They, Honest. They've, they've seen violence, they've put it behind them. I mean, that moment when LaFontaine decides that he will withdraw from the election in Terrebonne rather than have violence, that moment, that's that St. Paul restraint. moment. Restraint, that yeah. he will not have more deaths. He'd rather lose power than have more deaths. It's very interesting. Existentialism. That's one thing that comes, I'm, and I'm just winding down here. We're winding down. All right, so, sorry, sorry. Because I got the <laughs> sign. First of all, the amount of violence that these poor men had to face. Right. The, the burning of their homes. Thugs, yeah. groups coming up and almost killing them. Yeah. Their physical beings were threatened. Yeah. Both of them. Both of them. And repeatedly. They didn't gather groups around them to to retaliate, did no. they? No. They it showed what courage they had. You yeah. know, that kind of restraint. Thugs will always think, you know, courage is hitting back. They, as I said, they, you know, they invented the Gandhi method. And it's not just me being, you know, a proud Canadian. What is completely forgotten now is that Canada was the... If you want to look at this in colonial terms, mm. Canada was the senior dominion. We invented talking your way into independence. No one else invented it. We invented that. It had never been done before. We carried it off. Every one of those imperial conferences that then became, you know, Dominion whatever conferences, the leading voice against Britain was Canada, whether it was Laurier or Borden or Mackenzie King. I mean, we went into those things as the voice for independence, the voice for another way, and often, unfortunately, the Australians and New Zealanders were not on our side, but, you know, there would be others like the Indians and whatever who would be on our side. You know, it isn't a sort of accident out of nowhere that we were the leaders in the take the empire apart school, even though we did it very discreetly. But think about how clever that was, because the thing that is forgotten is that the British and French empires in particular, but let's say the British, the French, the German, the Italian empires, controlled the world in a way which we can't even imagine today. I mean, the United States has never had that kind of authority in the world. They had everything locked down. If you were sitting in 1890 or 1900, even 1905, anywhere in the world, uh, the thought that you could actually disobey these empires, or dress differently, or eat differently, or, you know, think differently, was just take the situation with the United States at its height and multiply it by 10. And so the fact that these guys invented this method in that atmosphere is really, really extraordinary. They just wanted to be treated like the British treated their own people. Well, yes and no. They wanted that, but they also realized that, it, that the British method wouldn't work. They really didn't like the class system. 
We had a wider franchise, too. We had this enormous on. franchise. Yeah. Remember, the whole thing was driven from the grassroots, which was not the case in Britain or France or the United States. Uh, they had sort of moments, but the United States was always, you know, 50% of the economy was slaves, slave-driven. So that means you, you do not have essentially a grassroots democracy. And the, the Senate was only popularly elected as of 1912 or 1913, and it had as much power as the president. So anyway, I think that, that they are these astonishingly exciting people who were written out of history by the pro-empire school. Expensive. to put them back into history. And what you mention in the book is that there aren't plaques even. No, it's nothing. There's all sorts of activity, things that took place that were seminal in the mm. development of this country, and they're not even recognized. No. I mean, at Why? least in Montreal, there's the Lafayette Park with a big statue, which was gigantic ceremony with the governor general and everything when it was unveiled. But Baldwin has just been written out. I mean, the University of Toronto, founded by Baldwin, there's no mention of him. There's all sorts of amazing things that they introduced. Municipal democracy. Secular universities. Secular yeah. universities. I mean, every university in Canada today is based on the Baldwin model. The legal system. The idea of an egalitarian inclusive society, and, you know, the people who sort of tried to do this thing about, well, you know, we're English and French, and then we're multicultural, but that's different. They completely missed the point. What LaFontaine and Baldwin were saying was, if we can imagine the other, then there can be others. They didn't limit it to English and French. They just figured out how it would work on an ethical basis at the time. The irony, though, is that the native population had to fight the same fight. This is, of course, the great unknown, because in a way, you know, had they stayed in power at that point, the Canadian government was getting control over Aboriginal affairs they would have been faced with this question. They never really had to deal with the Aboriginal question. But you see very quickly people like MacDonald and Karchi and so on did, and some of it they did well, and some of it they were absolutely appalling and led to a total uh, disaster. Which leads us into uh, our next interview with Joseph Boyd. It's a wonderful book. I've just been rereading it. It's interesting. Last night somebody said, well, why aren't we talking more about uh, you know, the outrageous security situation during the G20 in Toronto? And I said, we are talking about that. The 1849 riots set the pattern for what Canadians do at their best, which is you don't use the police, you don't use the army, you don't open fire, you don't arrest people, you do the minimum, you stay calm, and you try to figure out how you can get people to cooperate. You do not use the US-European model. That's a failure here. <laughs> you know, if you want to understand whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing in the G20, all you have to do is take yourself back to the roots of modern legal Canada, Lafontaine and Baldwin, and you have the answer. Well, allow me to thank you for yeah. your time and uh, invite our listeners to embrace this series of extraordinary Canadians, not just for the content, but for the beautiful manner in which they've been produced. Mm. It'd be interesting to see these books in places like India, and Australia, and New Zealand. These, these are the roots. These are the roots. Yeah. Thanks. John Rossensall is Canada's leading public <laughs> and responsible for this uh, fine series that's now in bookstores near you. Thanks again for your time. Thank you.